Hello and welcome. You are listening to Housing for All, the podcast that believes we all deserve a great home that allows us to flourish. I'm Chris and my co-hosts are Mary. Hello. And also Andrew. Hey, guys. All right. We stopped. We stopped right in the teeth of the action with part one of episode two. What, how are we picking up? So we're going to pick up right where we left off and we're going to keep talking about housing systems that rely on public rental housing. And we're going to start in Austria and then head over to Sweden. And along the way, we're going to take a little detour to talk about rent controls, um, just because rent controls are such a fringe idea in the United States, even though, you know, they're used throughout the world, um, that to an American audience, you really have to uh, uh, set the groundwork and lay a little foundation about, uh, about rent controls. So that's the plan. Let's do it. I'm going to start by making a provocative statement and say that renting for-profit housing in Austria is better than renting or owning in the United States. That (laughs) that I would say would make me, I would question, I would have questioned that, but we just went through an exhaustive list of why it's garbage city (laughs) in the United States, so I believe you entirely. Yeah. All right. Okay, so let's. All right, I guess then there's no sense in. Uh, let's just jump right in and see what is this great form of tenure. So again, it's private, for-profit housing, but your rights as tenant give you all the advantages of owning without the disadvantages, huh. and they also give you all the advantages of renting without the disadvantages. The first one is rent control. So your housing is going to be affordable um, because it's rent controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also indefinite length of tenure, but with an Austrian twist. In Austria, children can inherit rental leases from their parents. They inherit the exact same lease that their parents signed. Oh, so sort of like a rental version of the the Norway previous model, where you could pass down things to children, right? Right. It's Hmm. yeah. So it's like it's like home ownership, right? Because you can even pass it on to your children. Right. You like own it, but not really. Ah. So it is not unusual for someone to be born in an apartment, grow up there, and then inherit it once their parents pass on or move to someplace smaller to retire. They might even pass it on to their own children. You can also renovate your apartment over your landlord's objections. Oh, it's more, so this is that's really interesting. Yeah, so it's difficult to estimate, but there's simply no doubt that there has been a massive investment in housing stock by tenants renovating their own apartments, um, which obviously would never happen yeah. here. No, I mean, because like, we have different. I never even different been allowed set to of paint. rights. I mean, like that's. that's yeah, yeah, well, and and even if you did, I mean, like, even if you did want to do like some minor fix-up work, uh, you don't have any feeling of ownership, so it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it, it feels like a waste of money. Yeah, to, you, it's just to like it's pure loss. Yeah, to like just like refinish the floors of your own apartment. Why would you ever do that? Your rental apartment, right? Why because would you it, ever would do benefit, that? it would landlord. benefit somebody else. Yeah. yeah, or it might even cause your landlord to raise your rent because now yeah. you've got now you know the apartment's a little bit nicer, so you ought to be paying a little bit higher rent. Right, right. Or they're like, man, you know what? You just did that. And you're out. I'm going to rent your apartment to somebody else for more money. 
Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, yeah. So this is better than renting or owning in the United States. So you can live there forever and your children can inherit the lease. That's an advantage of home ownership. You can renovate your apartment over your landlord's objections. That's an advantage <laughs> of a home ownership. But you are not responsible for maintenance. So if your furnace blows up or your roof needs replaced, um, it's your landlord that has to has to foot the several thousand dollar bill to fix those things. Um, that's not your problem. And that's the advantage of renting. Huh. Hmm. I mean, it sounds great. I'm on board. Let's move to Austria. It sounds great. It does also sound like sort of, this is going to be being like way too much of a nerd, like weirdly logistically complicated because you have like these multi-generational leases. Presumably, do you have, I mean, who knows who owns the building that could change, like if the building changed hands, it, it blows my mind that like you could sell the building and your interest grandkids is, I, I love it. It's just, it's, it's, it's so far from what I'm used to understanding in terms of like renting that like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a second. A it does, it does feel a little bit, but there's so much more. Yeah. Like, I'm like, does it also, does it, does it also, is it also nonstick? I'm waiting for the, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty great. I mean, yeah, yeah it, it just seems, it's so foreign to our concept where like, I don't know, I feel like we just like kind of get it back in sides the whole time. So like the idea, it's like, no, 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 this makes sense. Like you basically, you rent it, you can stay there forever. You basically basically own it but somebody else put in the initial like somebody else's job is to make sure that it's maintained properly like that's pretty cool like being a landlord really is like being a professional handyman it sounds like which is i guess kind of what it should be or you have like a fleet of handymans yeah yeah, i guess but yeah Hmm. Hmm. yeah i i had a similar reaction when i first learned about it just hard to so different it's just hard to wrap your head around um and it's let's also point out that in the netherlands and then sweden is the last country we're going to be talking about today Mm. tenants cannot renovate over their landlord's objections and children cannot inherit leases so um this really is you know this really does make the austrian system special and different um truth is stranger than fiction it's almost (laughs) unbelievable how this how this was set up um, so I actually, on my home podcast, did an entire episode just on how this came about. Um, but the truth really is stranger than fiction. Um, so uh, so we mentioned rent controls. So all private housing built prior to 1945 is subject to rent controls. But this is basically all of it. There's very little housing that's been built since then. Um, there's a small amount of luxury for profit housing that's been built since 1945 that has no run controls, but, um, again, it's not that much. So now it sounds like Austria screws over private landlords, but they've actually struck a really good balance. Um, of all the countries on this list, Austria has been the kindest to for-profit landlords. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, right, it doesn't sound like it, but um, we know this because aside from the Great Depression era, where everything was topsy-turvy, for-profit landlords historically have not sold their properties to exit the market. So, in some way, it's working for them, because if it wasn't, then they would be selling their properties and leaving the market. Yeah, because I guess like in the American mindset, typically that's the idea. You buy a bunch of houses, rent them out until the mortgage is paid off sell them for profit right that's that then you retire like that's the idea but i guess if yeah maybe get a couple yeah. of years in there of just pure profit but yeah yeah but that's that's awesome they just i guess like they just sort of 
they just work. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it must be. It just must have to do with stability. I mean, I think that. I think actually, probably, it is not. It is not great. I mean, we know because we talked about it before, but it's not actually great for the landlords either. You know, we talked about how in the last episode how um, landlords don't actually make that much money. I mean, there are like slumlords who I'm sure do, but like, you know, kind of just buying housing up and then letting it run into the ground by not really maintaining it is also not the best way to make a bunch of money. You're just kind of like a thug. Yeah. Uh, forcing right. people into poverty, so it's not it's not great. So I, I would see I could see potentially that if you have um, a nice steady source where you have people living in rental housing for a long time, which we definitely don't have here, that that's pretty stable income. And if you want to keep people steady, and you don't have this kind of a, this constantly fluctuating idea of you know like let's 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 keep let's keep turning over groups of people in my rental property you have to maintain it like you you actually care about the building itself so that's got to be good yeah i can kind of see how it doesn't screw over for-profit landlords yeah so um so on the other hand though the netherlands has pretty similar uh landlord tenant regulations but they saw an absolute collapse of the for-profit rental housing as landlords sold their properties and exited the market so in 1947 60 of all housing stock was for-profit rental by 1993 just 13 percent was hmm. so if you're wondering where this housing went so most of it was low quality housing that was sold to nonprofit housing corporations which then renovated it and rented it out as high quality public housing Mm. and singapore and norway they both went from being majority renter countries to nearly all homeowners and that doesn't happen without putting a lot of landlords out of business that is true so Um, So basically, in Austria, rents are low enough that they're affordable to tenants, but they're also high enough to cover the cost of managing and maintaining the building, and then also a small profit margin for the landlord. Um, And then there's obviously housing allowances um, to support, you know, as the safety net to support really low income Austrian households. Um, and then there's actually another another boost for landlords. There's been massive public subsidy for the rehabilitation of for-profit housing. And so we see this most clearly in Vienna, where Vienna's pre-World War II housing stock, as a rule, had no bathrooms, no central heating, no running water. And starting in the 1980s, the city of Vienna spent almost two decades and great public expense renovating this housing, right, adding running water, heat, toilets some real basics <laughs> you know some some luxury amenities <laughs> right, right they're like oh, we're putting in a toilet that's gonna raise the points <laughs> yeah. so yeah so so at a glance it seems like austria really screws over private landlords in reality um they've been very kind to for-profit landlords well they've made it like a stable business i feel yeah. like it's not, yeah, yeah and giving them free, right? <laughs> giving them free renovations, like free cash <laughs> yeah. renovations. Yeah, no, that seems that seems pretty good. Um, I mean, they would have to, otherwise, you could not have to. You, I mean, I think that the stranglehold um, and the the bad relationship between tenants and landlords here is it's sort of like they're they're seagulls fighting over the same bag of French fries, right? Like you're just like they're just like picking at each other constantly. 
you know, like the the landlord doesn't take care of the building, so the tenant doesn't take take care of the building either, and it's just like this big race to the bottom. Whereas if you are like, nope, everything's like pretty good, and it's yours, and you have some ownership here, then yeah, probably that that breeds sort of a uh, level of respect. That means that this is this is a pretty stable system. Yeah. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And so I think we're going to have to take a diversion into just talking about rent controls because all five of the housing systems we're talking about use rent controls. And I think we, have, we it's really worth spending some extra time talking about rent controls because rent controls are really off the table in the United States. So in 31 states, state law forbids cities or counties from instituting rent controls. I don't know if you knew that, um, but <laughs> I mean, I, I think it makes sense to me because I don't think I've ever lived any place where there were rent controls. Yeah, I think I've only heard references uh, to like 90s sitcoms set in New York. Yeah, <laughs> about rent controls going on, <laughs> or like Woody Allen movies. I yeah, like can't move because I live in a rent controlled apartment. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Right, right. So yeah, so until very recently, only three states plus Washington, D.C., had any form of rent control at all. And even in those three states, it was only a handful of cities that were actually using it. Um, Now, very recently, this was 2019, Oregon instituted a statewide rent control. Um, So they are a massive outlier for rent control in the United States. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's hard to wrap my head around why a state would... would say it's forbidden for a city or county to institute rent controls. Yeah, yeah. But, unless the uh, unless the landlords have a uh, have a pretty <laughs> pretty solid thumb. But even then, that's that's like a, a statewide landlord mafia, which is not something I wouldn't believe in at this point, frankly. Yeah, but does seem a little bit. I mean, it is something I would very much like to watch a reality program or at least a somewhat trashy documentary about, though. <laughs> They're called. Um, it's called Alec. Um, oh, they're the oh. it's it was Alec model legislation that oh, it was huh. it was like you know it was like identical language that was passed in thirty two different states. Huh. Um, Oregon overturned it with this law. So it's not even like a statewide mafias. It's like a national collection of statewide mafias, basically <laughs> a, yeah. a syndicate, yeah. if you will. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So. Um, so, so anyway, in the United States, it's just common sense that rent controls and length of tenure regulations will cause more problems than they solve, or maybe are even unfair. Um, but, and yet we see rent controls all over the world. So let's try to understand why these systems use rent controls and why they don't think that they're unfair. So there's uh, three three major reasons that we're going to talk about today. The first one we just got done talking about right in Vienna, where without public subsidy, most for-profit housing had no heat and no running water. So if the public has paid to subsidize those renovations, why shouldn't the public get rent controls in return? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And this is really the topic of our fourth episode, because in the United States, we have extensive subsidy of private rental housing. And I think that means that it's just not unreasonable for the public to expect something in return if the public is going to be subsidizing private rental housing. Yeah. No, I'm on board. Yeah. 
Um, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I feel <laughs> that seems like another thing that we're just like not very good at. Like we are like, yeah, I mean, we pay like our tax dollars, but like, what do they really do for us? I know. Yeah, I love that argument. It's like, yeah, uh, I hate paying taxes because I don't get anything out of them. It's like, well. You do, and you should be getting more. I mean, like, or I, like, pay more and get more. Like that—that yeah. that the idea that you would pay more taxes and they would not directly benefit you. Yeah, is is such a hoodwink. It's a fascinating disconnect on the sort of political right in America of like, you know, this this assumption that this money is going to a vacuum. I did see. I think the one of the best sort of rebuttals to some sort of idiotic. Uh, critique of of quote unquote socialism, not even actual socialism, just like you know. <laughs> decency um, simply to point out the idea that like you know people say that socialists want free things no we just want to get what we paid for <laughs> like we're giving this money we want to get like the proper services and it can be done so it can be done yeah I mean capitalism's favorite thing is to very earnestly accuse uh, socialism of bringing about the weakest points of its own system Without even a shred of irony, oh, Chris, yeah. like no sense of irony. It's like it's like if you do socialism, you will have these socialistic overlords, and you're like, no, actually, that doesn't. That's what happens under capitalism. Yeah, the, They're be, called your boss. Wait- like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you know, you'll be waiting in food lines under socialism. You'll do that now, but you have to pay when you get to the end of it. So it's sort right, of a, it's sort not of a free. Bum deal. Yeah. It's not free. Yeah. Um, well, right now, my I, I assume. Uh, well, I know now because you know everybody needs to be informed but um a large percentage of my tax dollars are currently buying riot gear for cops which i'm not excited about which is infuriating frankly yeah yeah that's yep yep pull a goddamn throw (laughs) so i don't think it's unreasonable where's my riot gear anyway that's what i'm asking does mama get her riot gear yeah um, Solid. Yeah. Um, so, our, so our second point here um, is uh, the best example is in Germany. Um, so they're not on our list. We're actually going to mention them in episode four briefly. Um, but in Germany, indefinite length of tenure is in the German constitution. It's article 14, if you want to take a look. Mm. And what article 14 says is that without a very secure right to your housing, even if you're a tenant, you cannot exercise control over your own life. So in other words, without housing, you are not actually a free person. That's pretty groovy. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. That's a pretty groovy way of putting it. I mean, so basically (laughs) they're saying we need, we need to allow people to have the right to housing and not be kicked out for arbitrary reasons. Because if we don't allow that, like they would, they would not put it this way, but like, their civil liberties are completely undermined. Yeah, they, they, wouldn't exactly. put, they wouldn't put it that way. They'd probably say it in German. But they would say it in German, and there would be... <laughs> yeah, Yeah, exactly. I'll, yes. I'll leave. I'll leave. There would be a lot more guttural sounds, but yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, so I mean, with... Uh, at, so if you lose your home, I mean, that just upends your life. You might lose all your possessions. You might lose your job. You might lose your kids. Without a secure housing, even if you're a tenant, um, you're just not a free person. And so maybe another way to say this is that housing is a basic human need and the right to control real estate should not be absolute because the right to a home is more important. And so a dispute 
over somebody renting a car or renting machinery or something like that will be treated very differently by the courts if there's a dispute. Um, so the courts will always err on the side of the tenant. And so that's kind of, we see this in some of the other regulations that, for example, you have to be three months behind on rent to be evicted or destroy the property, um, or your landlord has to be homeless himself. And if you if you destroy the property, it's sort of a sort of a pyrrhic victory at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third reason is that the value of real estate is mostly based on what's around it. So ask any real estate agent what are the three most important things when they're trying to sell a property. Andrew, would you like to take it away? I mean, is it location, location, location? Mm. It is. <laughs> it is location, location, location. So in my home podcast, we learned about a housing cooperative in Manhattan where studios sell for $4 million a piece. Now, <laughs> if you teleport that building to the middle of the prairie somewhere, um, you wouldn't be selling those for $4 million a piece. Right in the middle of the prairie, you can't walk to the grocery store. Yeah, um, you can't walk to world class restaurants. You're not within walking distance of dozens of the best museums in the entire world. You don't have access to high paying jobs, public transit, Central Park. It'll be really interesting to see what happens out of the end of this with all of that real estate. <laughs> the yeah. stuff that makes it oh very God, valuable. Yeah. That's different now. Now that, yeah, now that population density is a slightly um, yeah. more worrisome thing, it will be very curious. I mean, it's never, Manhattan is never not going to be wildly desirable. Yeah. But fair, I've never known anyone who actually enjoyed living in New York, so. <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> true. That's kind of true. Um, or uh, there's no nothing in between. Either there are people yeah. who are miserable, and then there's like a small section of people who are like, I'm miserable, but I would never live anywhere else. <laughs> those are the choices. Um, those are the choices. <laughs> there's a, another good illustration of this also comes from New York City. Um, so New York City used public money to build the Highline Park. Mm -hmm. And this is a green elevated walkway. Um, it's it's really cool. I've been on it. It's, it's really amazing. Um, but there were no changes to nearby real estate. And yet the prices around the new Highline Park skyrocketed. And that was simply because they were close to this new park. So the question is, why should a for-profit landlord be able to profit off of this public investment hmm. in a park that they didn't have anything to do with? The same thing is happening in Atlanta right now. They recently, I think, or they're like in the middle of it, but they um, they've refurbished this like you know um, like petty way but big um, infrastructure called the Beltway, and now it's just like well. Hopefully now it's completely deserted and people are staying home and wearing masks and all that stuff, although I'm sure they're not. But when the last time I was there, um, it's just like riddled with people riding those like bird scooters, which is super oh. obnoxious. <laughs> but, but it's really cool because there are tons of restaurants that are now along it, right? Like like uh, Atlanta has a, a, like crazy traffic issues and a, a lot of... Um, it's like kind of slow to get around on a car, but you also sort of need a car. So to have like this thing that you can like hop on and like ride a bike there, you know, and go to restaurants and not have to worry about parking and stuff. That's huge. And it's it, but the problem with it is that it is um, pushing people out um, 
rent-wise, because now anything by the Beltway is suddenly so much more valuable <laughs> than it was before with absolutely no investment of those landlords whatsoever. They just happen to be lo- like close to it. So this is exactly. happening. This is happening even outside of, I guess my point is this is happening even outside of like really big cities in like New York. Like this can happen in smaller cities like Atlanta. Well, yeah, I mean, big. this is, we've, you know, we've known about this for, for hundreds of years, um, yeah. you know, uh, Henry George and Friedrich Engels all wrote about this. Um, but so anyway, the way I would summarize it is the value of housing is mostly based on what is around it. A landlord doesn't cook great food in neighborhood restaurants, doesn't run a hardware store, doesn't curate museums, mow the grass in public parks, etc., etc. But without rent controls, landlords benefit from all of that work that other people do. I think it'd be great if it was like, listen, if you want to be a landlord, you're now officially on the maintenance crew for the closest public park. (laughs) (laughs) Here is your trash stick and here is your bag. Go to work. (laughs) This is your job now. Um, Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And so much of being a landlord also seems sort of like um, like vampiring and uh, like opportunity and foresight so it's kind of like which i think all basically like boils down to luck (laughs) like it kind of depends on when you could afford something how affordable it was at the time and then just time just waiting it out and sometimes that pays off and sometimes it doesn't but like all those people that bought um buildings in new york when it was like kind of scary to live in new york and it was more affordable to live in new york now are like reaping huge benefits because they've just sort of like waited it <laughs> $4 out. Four million dollars studios, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and it seems, and and we already know. I mean, like, we already know that we're really good at not making um, rich people pay too much in taxes. So it's not like that's being offset. Like, if we <laughs> had a proper tax system, you could make the arguments like, no, well, but they pay more in, so that allows public projects. Blah 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 blah. But that's just so. That's so broken that I don't think we can count on that enough. Yeah. And, you know, you can make all these same arguments about home ownership, too, and really argue that there ought to be price controls in home ownership for, for all of these same reasons. I can see um, that. Yeah. 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 I bet um, I bet that there's some like really some really nasty literature around. Well, it's like, but no, but the landlord by maintaining the building makes sure you don't have a rough element in your park. So there's <laughs> it's an ecosystem. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure there's all sorts of like adjacent justifications for for that nonsense. Yeah, but yeah, I think that that's nonsense. Like yeah. the, the the area is what determines a person's quality of life. Unless unless the building is like, you know, substandard. Yeah. Right. Um, and then we'll also throw out there that if rent controls are used so often, they must work. So, you know, we're talking about uh, housing systems where rent controls exist and there is high quality housing. There are 35 OECD countries and 22 of them have some form of rent control. So we have, you know, it's not hard to find examples of rent controls working and rent controls are pretty common outside of the United States. So to review, rent controls are justified. Um, Number one, if private rental housing gets so much public subsidy, why should the public not get rent controls in return? 
Number two, housing is a basic human need and should not be left up to the free market. And number three, the value of housing is mostly in its surroundings, which the landlord didn't create. Let's look at the other side of the coin. Some common objections to rent controls. Uh, two of them we'll look at that are the most common. The first one is that with rent controls, developers won't build housing. And the idea here is that it, if with rent controls, it won't be financially viable for landlords to, to build more housing or for developers to build more housing. Um, the problem I have with this one is that developers never build enough housing with <laughs> or without rent controls. Um, so studies in Massachusetts and California found that rent control has little to no effect on the supply of housing. Things like interest rates, construction costs, public subsidy have a stronger effect than by far than uh, than rent controls ever could. And yeah, this just doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. This argument like, right. Because, l- 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 OK, like apart from anything else, if, if you just accept that rent controls mean that a certain thing, a certain cost of living somewhere for an individual will stay the same. Like, wouldn't you just have a situation like you had in, um, like you had where in these other, in other countries where you just have very stable rentership, like there's incentive for people to stay as opposed to constantly turning it, turning over. Yeah. I mean, like I, I think when I, when last time I was writing, I think, you know, I changed places once every one or two years, the idea of a multi-generational lease. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. I would, but I would guess that the cost of, of maintaining and having a good tenant for a really long time is, is better than, or is lower than the cost of having many tenants over many years. And each time they move out, you have to paint and clean. And then like, there's the overhead of selling them. Like it's the same idea as like, it's easier for a business and cheaper for a business to keep a client versus getting a new one. <laughs> Point of what are you're supposed to paint and clean? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I suppose if you don't do those things, maybe not. Yeah. But I mean, like, I understand like if you can continue to like gouge them every year, but I, I just don't, yeah. Like th- then you would build the type of house or the type of property where the uh, the cost of rent would allow you to maintain it, I feel like. Hmm. You know? It seems more stable and, and less risky. Okay, Austria. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's keep talking about rent control. Yeah, so, so, um, so, I mean, one important thing here is that the loans that pay for the construction of apartment buildings take decades to pay off. So it's kind of unreasonable to expect for developers to respond to short-term incentives like rent levels. Mm -hmm. Um, But long story short, saying developers won't build enough housing if there are rent controls is like saying developers won't build enough housing if people eat bananas. (laughs) Developers never build enough housing. Um, That's why we have so much public support for private housing in the United States. And again, that's what we're going to be talking about in, in episode four. The other reason that people often cite against rent controls is that landlords won't be able to afford to keep up with maintenance, or maybe they won't find it worthwhile to keep up with maintenance if there are rent controls. Um, But remember, Milwaukee has no rent controls. And we talked 
uh, last episode about the local newspaper here investigating the absolutely horrific conditions in Milwaukee rental housing. And, you know, we don't have to repeat, you know, the exact contours of that discussion here, um, but that's not going to stop me from reading one more quote. Um, this one was from a story about the landlord, James Herrick. At a building in the 4400 block of North Hopkins Street, tenant Patricia Hicks pointed to her kitchen sink, which was filled with filthy, greasy, and moldy water. The pipes under the sink were disconnected, making it impossible to drain it. I called and they said they would fix it, Hicks said, who has since moved. It's been at least a month. So no rent controls. (laughs) Moldy water. Yeah. That's tough. And then... That's tough. (laughs) Yeah. And then um, New York City has another really good example. So New York City has some rent controlled units and these have a reputation for being poorly maintained. But landlords get away with poor maintenance of non-rent controlled buildings in New York City as well. So um, let's uh, read a quick quote from the Brooklyn Eagle. During a tour of Corn's property... At 250 East 29th Street in Brooklyn Monday, resident Megan Adams, 65, said she's been living under horrendous conditions for about 16 years. In January, her bathroom ceiling collapsed from water damage and the heat is frequently shut off, she said. Adams said she frequently finds mice droppings and one rodent recently crawled on her as she napped. It's like we're nobody in here, she said. The fact of the matter is, in exchange for rent, you have to have a unit that is safe for human beings to live in. Jason Korn has not provided that. And so that's what this is about, doing the best we can to shame the landlord into doing the work they're supposed to be doing, Williams said. I can't remember what podcast it was, but I'm pretty sure it was a group of like female comedians, lady comedians, talking about... Um, Living in, and they, they were talking about living in New York, and they all told separate separate stories of multiple instances where they were sleeping and their arm like fell off the edge of their bed, and in doing so, they grazed the tail of a mouse or a rat. <laughs> multiple instances, also also related. So Joe Dante uh, based his '80s movie classic Gremlins on living in Brooklyn. Uh, when he was a student at NYU, and he would talk about how, like, during the day, the apartment was just fine, but then at night, when he would turn out the lights, he could, like, hear the apartment, like, coming alive with roaches and mice, and uh, it reminded him of, like, kind of, like, a more classic representation of gremlins as, like, these little creatures that, like, live and, like, tinker with your stuff at night and break it, (laughs) Um, and that it's inspired him to write this movie. (laughs) So, yeah, no, there's definite, definite problems, even if... Even if, you know, kind of you have rent control, you don't have rent control. Like, you know, I I just feel like there's like a distant there's no incentive um, to keep people happy in these buildings. And that's actually the problem. Yeah. I just want to emphasize that her ceiling collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. That's um, so, crazy. I mean, yeah. There's oh just and I mean, kind of. Implicitly, there is no legal recourse for tenants living in this in these conditions, wherever they are, Milwaukee, New York City, wherever they are. Right. They're going to the press to try to shame the landlord into fixing things because there is no there is no legal recourse to, to you know, to get what they need. Um, you know, a lease contract is a legally binding document that is supposed to bind the landlord into 
providing safe housing, um, but clearly it's not enforced. Yeah, and so meanwhile, housing that has very strict rent controls in Austria, in the Netherlands, and elsewhere has, you know, extremely high quality housing and, you know, and and there are rent controls. So clearly rent controls really have nothing to do with how a building is managed and maintained by the landlord. Uh, just a you know, funny little anecdote. I came across a court dispute over a marble floor in a rent-controlled unit. Um, so, you know, really the problem is what, you know, what landlords here have the power to do if they choose to act unscrupulously. So, so in this uh, court dispute over a marble floor, like... <laughs> the the problem was was about like kind of a luxurious material um and right. it's ma- and its maintenance <laughs> in Austria meanwhile uh moldy water <laughs> right right exactly exactly wow wow um so i'm going to i'm going to make one more pitch cuz you know we're you know we could we could keep going about rent controls um you know we should for time we should cut it off but just you know one more pitch for our organization you know if you google rent controls you're probably going to find sources saying that rent controls don't work and here's why um and that's ridiculous because we can find examples of rent controls working very well in austria and the netherlands and other places um and i've also so i've only done preliminary research on rent controls um but i've found seven different types of rent controls so far Hmm. and i'm not trying to you know be all technocratic and split them up like these are things that have very fundamental differences um so in any case you're not going to be able to find a table that explains each type of rent control and the pros and cons so you know please consider checking out our organization and making a contribution to support you know getting some of this information out there to a wider audience yeah so that was a very long tangent, but just given how rare rent controls are in the United States, I think it's, I, I really think we had to cover that ground. Yeah, yeah absolutely. necessary and important. So that'll cover it for Austrian for-profit rental housing. So let's talk about Austrian public housing. So about 23% of all housing stock in Austria is public rental housing. Um, like anywhere else, it's concentrated in urban areas. And so uh, Vienna has a high proportion. Vienna is the capital largest city of Austria. About half of all housing stock in Vienna is public rental housing, and it houses about 60% of the population. Hmm. So some characteristics of how Austrian public housing works. So no surprises here. Once you move in, you never have to move out and you can pass it on to your children. Um, It's also very high quality. So public housing is for the most part, the most desirable housing in Vienna, right? It's historic buildings, great locations. It's just very desirable. Residents have a lot of say in choosing the amenities that will be in that public housing. So public housing might have spas, swimming pools, restaurants, childcare. Um, That's really awesome. Yes. Um, yeah. So and then I found uh, so I'll, I'll quote from this article I found that was about uh, about Austrian public housing. It's been home to local sports superstars like soccer icon Hans Kronkel, high ranking politicians and labor union heads. Even a former president's daughter chose public housing over a posh first district penthouse. 
Um, so Hans Kronkel. So imagine LeBron James living in public housing. And that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> Um, so, and then towards the end of the article, the reporter asks a manager of a of how public housing building if there are any complaints from the residents. He stares and thinks. On most days, people just want to make reservations for the spas and sauna. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I mean, sometimes, sometimes they don't have as much access to the, all the kick-ass stuff we have. Hmm. Right. And then we also can't talk about Austrian public housing without talking about architecture awards. And so the best known one is the Hundertwasser House. Um, so can't even describe what this place looks like. So it's one um, it's one architecture awards. All, you know, Austrian public housing is just really it's just cool. Like you could just look up pictures of Austrian public housing all day. Um, I highly suggest you Google the Hundertwasser house right now. I'm doing it right now. Hundertwasser. I just typed in Hundertwasser, but the foolish me, uh, Frederick Hundertwasser is a a a visual artist, so that's what came up as opposed to this house. All right, let me see. Ooh, very cool. It looks like... um, it looks like a bunch of oh, oh yeah. It looks like a bunch of like uh, little San Francisco like colorful box houses all stacked hmm. on top of each other. I feel like when people like imagine container like shipping container homes, this is what they actually think of, but it's not what they get. <laughs> yes, this is the whimsical version of that. This is whimsical and very charming. I like it. There's something like hundreds of plants that are planted or like within the building. Um, if you can find a shot. There's kind of one shot that people like to take at the base of the building looking up. Um, but if you can find one with the perspective of the whole building, um, it's it's wild. Yeah. Like, I think I'm looking at one where it's like more on the corner and there are like trees just like protruding from it looks like like windows and stuff. <laughs> like, it's pretty crazy. I like it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, th- so that's that's kind of the best example. But um, they're just really cool public housing buildings all over, uh, you know, all over the country. Which I think is important to mention, because I think when we think about public housing, we imagine like very brutalist architecture, Soviet, mm-hmm. like, you know, we have to stay in this unit, even though even though it has rats because the stove works like that kind of thing. <laughs> and it doesn't it's clearly aka and also and it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, it isn't that way. <laughs> like there, <laughs> I mean, there might be examples like that, too, but there's plenty of examples. I like that you keep highlighting how how cool a lot of these buildings are yeah well hold that thought um we are kind of going there so um so so okay so how is public housing built if it was built prior to the 1980s then it's owned by the city government if it was built from the 1980s onward then it's owned by nonprofit housing corporations like in the netherlands um so let's take these two types of housing in turn So municipally owned public housing, in order to apply, you have to make less than, um, it's about the equivalent of 53,000 US dollars per year. And for a couple, it's about $80,000. And so obviously once you move in, you never have to leave. Um, Now, when they were building this housing, they hired world-class architects to design 
the public housing buildings um, and really, you know, didn't didn't spare expense on on hiring great architects to build public housing. And so that's how, you know, that's how that cohort of buildings turned out. So, you know, so cool. It's because they had really the best of the best designing them. And they and they prioritized it. Yeah, right. For the other part uh, of public housing, the the part that's owned by nonprofit housing corporations, about half of the units are reserved for the public housing waitlist, and the other half there's no restrictions, so anybody can move into that other half. Um, some of this uh, latter half is owner occupied, but for the most part, it's all rental housing. So, kind of the typical path um, of how a, how one of this type of building gets built. The city of Vienna announces a new site for a public housing project, and then the housing corporations draw up proposals. The best proposal is chosen by a jury of architects, landscape architects, economists, sociologists, and ecologists. Um, there are four criteria that they're judging on, and only one is cost effectiveness. Um, the other three are environmental sustainability, architectural quality, and social sustainability, which has to do with urban planning. Um, do you have a plan for how low-income households will have access to job opportunities? Kind of things like that. Yeah, that's nice. That's a very balanced way to look at it, too. I mean, I think I think that you hear a lot especially now where it's like, well, obviously the right thing to do is this, but for the economy, we hmm. have to do this yeah. for money. This is what needs to happen. So I like the idea that it's balanced out with, for with money, these other, which is not people, <laughs> yeah, which is money. which is not people. And it turns out people actually like make money. So, <laughs> uh, so actually we're just like killing our workforce um, for very short, very short gain, <laughs> short term gain. Um, so I like that it's balanced out. And I and I also like that it's like architectural quality. Like they they acknowledge that these buildings, it, they're going into this assuming that these buildings are going to be here for a long time and that if they can make something really interesting looking or something that fits with the rest of their city, if it's if it's architecturally beautiful anyway, that um, that that's just like good for business, which I like as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then the last step, once um, they've got the, the winning design picked out, the future residents of that building are expected to pay the housing corporation a cash down payment, and that helps to finance the construction. If you are low income and you can't afford uh, that contribution, then the state will make a contribution on your behalf. And it's very participatory. The future tenants help to design um, the buildings before construction begins from the floor plans of the units to the amenities that will be in the building. So, you know, do we want to, you know, a spa and a nice restaurant or should we go practical and, and get a kindergarten? Hmm. hmm. That's nice. That's nice. So that you can kind of get the idea and the, the flavor of the building. Um, based on its initial tenants, which will probably, which, you know, if they, if, since they'll probably stay a long time, will also inform um, future, uh, future wants and needs of those tenants. I was kind of wondering about that. I was like, 
Is it weird? Um, so, example, on our street, um, you can kind of see there are, like, waves of people and when they bought houses. Like, kind of a lot of houses <laughs> always go up for sale around the same time because people will get older and, like, want something smaller, less maintenance, whatever. Um, and y- we kind of have, like, this younger generation of people, like, kind of our age uh, that are kind of slowly outweighing the older one and i was wondering if that also happens to these buildings like you have like buildings that go through phases where everything's like kindergartens and grocery stores and then when all their kids inherit it later suddenly it's all like nightclubs and sexy sauna time <laughs> like how if that's like there's like weird cultural shifts in these buildings um but but for, i think for the most part people like kind of want similar things out of housing so yeah you know, yeah, security, yeah. safety. They no no one wants to deal with obnoxious neighbors. <laughs> like I get it. <laughs> so all good questions. Yeah. Um, so what happened? So this is a happy ending. Woohoo! Um, nice. The housing system pretty much continued on without substantial reforms. Um, so the 1917 rent control law is still in effect. The political will remains to ensure the ongoing construction and maintenance of public housing. Um, so by our four criteria, things are still um, things are still great. So number one, great housing affordability might even be the best on this list. Um, number two, there I think there the Austrian system is the best with security because rental housing can be inherited. And they're the only one on this list that that'll do that. Um, number three, housing is very high quality. It's very desirable. Like I said, it could be the best on this list between Austria and Singapore. Um, really neck and neck, just very, just cool buildings. And number four is uh, long-term maintenance. Is it maintained to last for generations? And it clearly is. There's the political will to spend the money needed to maintain these historic buildings and to rehabilitate old housing. So, you know, remember the oldest public housing is almost a century old, but it's still high quality. It's still very desirable. Um, it needed work and the work got done. Um, so um, overall, it's a it's a great housing system. Nice. Yeah, you've con- you convinced me. I was nervous when it was like for profit. I was like, boo. <laughs> but it does seem like it's it's nicely balanced and it works and uh, people get what they need. And you have cool, cool public housing, which <laughs> yeah. is awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a great system. All right. Well, we are almost done. So we're on our last housing system. And that is the Swedish model. Um, so to start out, how well did this housing system work once everything was in place before anything got repealed? Our first criteria, affordable housing, um, works really well. Everyone could afford a place to live. Number two, housing security, also doing really well. Um, there's secure, uh, there's security in all forms of tenure. Our third criteria is housing high quality. Is this housing that people want to live in? Um, this housing system has a reputation for making ugly and monotonous housing. Um, <laughs> you might describe it as being perfectly fine housing. Um, you know, it has everything you need, but not necessarily a place that you want to live. I mean, I love Ikea, but... That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> um, number four, um, there's a clear budget for long-term maintenance, so housing is maintained to last for generations. 
Uh, for reference, the homeownership rate is 71%, and this includes a very large cooperative housing sector, and that's what makes this housing system special. And so that's where we're going to start. Our flavor is housing cooperatives. AKA smorgasbord. <laughs> Something for everyone, but no one can hog too much. you got to work together so that you're not eating all the pickled herring. I thought you were going to make a smorgas co-op board <laughs> joke. Oh, that would be uh, better. Yeah. yeah. So, we, yeah. we got there. We got there. As long as we're making fun of Swedish cuisine, I'm going to mispronounce some Swedish words in a minute. So. <laughs> Woohoo! Thanks for the warning, because oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So our last episode, uh, we talked about housing cooperatives. Um, Norway is another country with a large cooperative housing sector. Just so we're all on the same page, a uh, housing cooperative is a little bit like a condominium. So it's a building that has many units of housing. You own the unit you live in, but you don't own the building. And so in a condominium, the building is owned by a for-profit company. In a cooperative, the residents collectively own the building. Okay. Okay. So 22% of all housing stock in Sweden is cooperative. So it's a lot. And just to kind of... Uh, make it a little bit more concrete. A typical co-op is 20 to 80 units, um, but there are co-ops with more than a thousand units in them. It's still bigger than I would think. I mean, like, imagine like owning something with 80 other people is no joke. Yeah. Right. And so where this is coming from is that way back in the day, Sweden's housing system was an absolute catastrophe. So there was just a very severe housing shortage and this led to very high rents. It led to overcrowding and just really low quality housing, right? If your alternative is homelessness, you are going to take the low quality overcrowded home and pay really high rents for it. So in this crucible, people organized themselves into tenants unions and they would do things like organize rent strikes to try to fight back. And in 1923, some tenants unions banded together to found HSB Riksförbund to push for the legal changes that were necessary to allow for housing cooperatives. So um, at that point, they weren't recognized by Swedish law. And so that's what the organization set out to do. It's not hard to see why tenants unions would be interested in housing cooperatives because it's a form of tenure without landlords. Um, it's democratic control over housing. It makes a lot of sense why they were so interested in, in housing cooperatives. An important characteristic of the cooperative sector is that there's a handful of very large organizations that own most of the housing. So about half of all cooperative housing is owned by just two cooperative organizations. One is HSB Riksverbund, which we uh, met a moment earlier, and the other one is called Riksbegen, and my apologies to Sweden for <laughs> butchering those names. Um, and the reason that occurs is because it uses what's called a mother-daughter system. And so this is one of the ways that the system is just very well thought out and just a lot of planning went into it. Um, so, you know, if we got 20 of our closest friends, you know, the three of us, we got 20 of our closest friends and we tried to start a cooperative, we would fail. It's just not realistic for ordinary people to start a housing cooperative. A large organization, that would be the mother organization, um, right? They've got paid staff. They've got expertise. They've got experience and they're massive. So they have bargaining power and, they are, they can succeed at building housing complexes. 
and they can succeed because they're massive, because they have the paid staff of experts, they have the experience. So once these large organizations build a, uh, a, a big housing complex, they then sell them to the cooperatives themselves, the daughter organizations. So, you know, as I've imagined it, if we've got uh, 20 of our closest friends to start a cooperative, we wouldn't be building a brand new cooperative. We would be approaching these, you know, one of these cooperative organizations, the mother organizations and saying, do you have anything about 20 units, uh, you know, in this area of Milwaukee? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I got that. That makes sense. Um, also love that they uh, moved away from my patriarchal uh, language on that. Yeah. <laughs> Good for them. Mother, daughter. Yeah. So, so yeah, so a lot of thought went into it. So here's another example of, of this just being very, very well thought out. The daughter organizations buy the buildings using a combination of down payments contributed by the future residents and then the rest is paid for by borrowing. And then the residents then work together paying off that loan um, for the building. Um, now, both major cooperative organizations have a savings mechanism. And so the way that works is that an ordinary person can opt to deposit their savings instead of at a bank with a mother organization. Hmm. And the mother organization will use that money to build more housing. Now, once you, the saver, are ready to buy a unit of cooperative housing, you know, you're at a point in your life where you're ready to you're ready to buy um, you can apply that money to the purchase of a unit of cooperative housing. And as a saver, you also get to skip the very long waiting list. Hmm. And the mother organization gets to like leverage your um, the power of your money all, all this exactly. while. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. It feels a little company store-ish, but okay. Yeah, <laughs> I got it. Another important date in the history of Swedish cooperative housing, 1945, there was a change in law that stipulated that housing allowances can be used on any type of housing, including cooperatives. And this meant that even the most disadvantaged Swedish household could afford to join a cooperative if that's what they wanted to do. And then there are also price controls on cooperative units similar to what Norway did to make sure that those cooperative units of housing are always affordable. And this I wouldn't have believed if I didn't read it in multiple peer-reviewed housing policy journals. Condominiums were illegal until 2009. Uh, Oh, meaning like uh, sort of like if you had a building where the mother corporation just never went away? I mean, that's what a condominium is. No, if you were a developer and you wanted to build a condominium, you would not be allowed to do so. Right. But like a condominium would be defined as like I, I the builder would maintain, would continue to own this building and then just rent out to other people. Right. But could, I still could, collect the money. Right. You could rent it, but the, like the tenants would have no, you, they would never have an option of, or you couldn't give them an option of buying their unit. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. That is, that is pretty crazy. Yeah, but now, but it, now we have so few cooperatives here, yeah, <laughs> and so many condominiums that it's it's uh, yeah, it's just opposite day. I don't know, but when you think about condominiums, you're like, why does anyone buy a condo? It constantly blows my mind because yeah. I mean, for the cost of, I mean, there's my location. I kind of understand why but, like retirees buy condos, but but they're so expensive and so poorly, yeah, ma- like maintained in my my understanding. Yeah. So, 
I don't know. Flexing is a this window is in, in a non condo. Yeah, but then renting <clears throat> is not much. But I mean, like, yeah. damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, being able to make those management decisions and not have a company in charge of those management decisions um that's the appeal of the condominium or i mean sure that's the appeal of the cooperative right well you get like a cooperative is like you get a the benefits of um you get almost the benefits of like having a landlord except like you guys are each other's landlords kind <laughs> of because uh, everyone pays in uh, but uh, everyone's a, like a, everyone's one one eightieth of a landlord, and then um, but condos like you get you get the joy of being like I'll do what I want even though you kind of can't because you're connected to a bunch of other people that you're kind of tacitly agreeing that you guys will not cooperate, um, <laughs> which seems like a bad idea, frankly. But there you go. So okay, so that's cooperative housing in Sweden. Um, there's also a very big public housing sector. A quarter of all housing is public. And so housing is owned by nonprofit corporations, which are owned by the local government, as we mentioned earlier. So it's public in the literal sense of the word of being government owned. Uh, got it. Most of this housing was built between 1965 and 1974. And basically, the Swedish government decided that they were going to solve all of Sweden's housing problems by building a lot of public housing. They built one million units of public housing in less than 10 years. Um, In 1965, there were only three million homes in all of Sweden. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) It was a massive project. That's huge. Well, no wonder everything's a concrete brick. Yeah. To rush it out. <laughs> so it was, so, you know, essentially the public housing program was a success because once the dust settled, everyone had a decent place to live at an affordable price. Now, the Swedish were terrified of creating a stigma around their public housing. Well, they went all in on public housing, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you got a million units, you need some, you need butts and seats. I get it. <laughs> I get it. So, so the, you know, and the, I mean, really, the, the, the motivation was they just didn't want there to be any stigma. So there is no preference for low-income families. Anybody can move into Swedish public housing, regardless of income. The waiting list is simply in order of who applied. Hmm. hmm. Okay. And then no surprises here. Once you move in, you never have to move out. And so, you know, kind of tying some of this together, um, you know, and we mentioned above that you can use a housing allowance for cooperative housing. Um, You know, in the United States, we see that certain types of housing are skewed towards certain types of people. So public housing is for only low income people. Uh, Rental housing tends to skew towards less well off people. Homeownership skews towards the financially well off. And in Sweden, that's just not the case. Historically, all income levels live in all forms of housing in pretty similar ratios, and there's just no skew. Um, if you're rich, that doesn't make you any more likely to live in homeownership or in a cooperative. And if you're poor, it doesn't make you more likely to live in public housing. There's just no real skew. And it's been that way for decades. Do they do a good job? Like, are most buildings pretty evenly mixed? Or do you have, like, buildings that are mostly low-income? You have buildings that are, like, more she-she. 
like that 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 was my immediate thought when there's like there's no preference towards I was like how do they how do they maintain that I would think that there would be um there would be a bunch of kind of like inequality and then you would lose out on like kind of the great the great aspect that we keep seeing coming up in public housing which is that you have mixed income communities uh-huh. So that's actually a good segue to the next topic, oh, great. Um, which is some of the issues of Swedish public housing. So it was unquestionably a success in creating affordable housing, um, but there were issues. And so the first one is that public housing buildings were pretty ugly and viewed as being really monotonous. Um, so they did not hire world-class architects to design <laughs> these buildings. They're just very utilitarian. And then speaking to the the question that you asked a second ago, um, so so much housing was built so quickly that often the infrastructure would lag. So, for example, a building might be finished, but nobody could really use that building because the commuter rail station wouldn't open for another several years because the line hadn't been extended. Mm-hmm. And so those buildings became undesirable and kind of became ghettos. Yeah, that, hmm. I mean, that, that just makes sense. Because, like, if there's no preference and it's, like, a matter of opportunity and, like, striking striking while the iron's hot, like, I would assume that all the rich people would, like, gravitate to the more desirable buildings and try to, like, muscle other people out. Yeah, not to, not to call back uh, location, 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 right? I mean, this, this is a... Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's not just yeah. the building, it's, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it's all the so, stuff around it. Yeah. Well, and especially, like, how many years did they, did they like, increase <laughs> their housing by a third? Like, less than 10 years? So it makes sense. Although you would think that they would be able to sort of, like, stat- I mean, like, 10 years is not that long. But you would think that they'd be able to be like, hey, the rail is also a public, a public service. Let's work together. <laughs> Right. I think so. And then another issue is that there's a reputation for defects and that's kind of been overblown, but there was an element of truth um, because when you build so much housing so quickly, there's going to be defects and there's going to be kind of mistakes of, oh, this building's ready, but there's no commuter rail. You know, I think that's kind of inevitable. Um, it's almost a compliment to the system that it they built so much so quickly that some of these practical things couldn't be figured out fast enough yeah Um, well i mean good for them for being like we are going to uh we're gonna make this happen like here it is boom but yeah i can see that (laughs) there's two intentions i can see there being problems problems with that yeah and so and then another issue is that there was an oversupply of housing they just built too much um and so a lot of housing both public and private sat vacant for years one really interesting thing though is that rents didn't fall across sweden rents uh increased at the rate of inflation Hmm. so basic economics says that and common sense so basic economics says that if there is an oversupply of housing then prices should fall they shouldn't stay the same or you know, match inflation. Um, but housing just doesn't do a good job of following the laws of economics. <laughs> hmm. it, almost, so, it almost makes you wonder. You're like, econo- economics, what do you guys know? Yeah. <laughs> Why do you guys have any dog in this fight? You're wrong about most things. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like being a weatherman, but like far more 
threatening <laughs> for more <laughs> like uh, long term uh, for more long much more long term risk. The six day forecast is not true. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. can't can't be. Um, yeah. So, but this is an extremely important idea that I'd like to talk about more, but there's just not time. So, um, you know, check out our organization because um, this is a topic that deserves more coverage. Then there is also a for-profit rental housing sector, and that's regulated similarly to the other countries we've talked about today. Um, so they have indefinite length of tenure. Again, all three systems from today have indefinite length of tenure. They have market-based rent controls, or sometimes they're called soft rent controls. And the way these work is that there are tenants unions and there are landlord unions. And the tenants unions and landlord unions get together and argue over rent levels. And that's how rents are set. Hmm. Hmm. So they're sort of representatives for both, or they're explicitly representatives for both both uh, participants in this thing. That, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's like collective bargaining over rent. So even at like the macro level, there's sort of a sort of a co-op element, kind of. I suppose. Well, maybe not. It's the case, but I don't know. That, that that's an interesting. It's a very interesting angle. Unions work. Yeah, I don't. I don't think anyone else uses that model for rent controls. I yeah. I don't think that exists anywhere else. Hmm. Hmm. So what happened? Um, this is not a happy ending. There were Ugh. a lot of changes. Um, so we'll just do a quick aside. So in the 1990s, there was a banking crisis, um, basically identical to the American banking crisis in 2007 to 2008. Basically, private banks were making home ownership loans that they shouldn't have. Um, Sweden was an interesting case for, you know, for us back in 2008, because Sweden nationalized their banks instead of bailing them out, no strings attached. Um, obviously, that's not what happened here. Um <laughs> Got to mention it because, I mean, it's a big story, um, but, you know, public housing had nothing to do with this crisis because, you know, obviously public housing is rental. The issue was with mortgages. So just got to, you know, just got to throw that out there. That did happen in the early 90s. And then we're going to emphasize again that all these changes were political decisions. They weren't forced by circumstances, right? The system was working and they made changes anyway. It's not as though things weren't working and they were forced to make changes that they didn't want to. Um, these were choices that were made that didn't have to be made. So, so um, presumably this was like just sort of internal politicking like, what, what was the, what was the, why, why would you, why would you ruin something like this? I guess. So, uh, you know, basically people just forgot how bad things were and kind of, you know, didn't know why things were the way they were and, you know, why, why does public, why are there price controls in cooperative housing? Why do we have so much public housing? And they just kind of forgot why those things were there. And when somebody said, we can have something even better, um, they, you know, they, they believed it and let things get, you know, get repealed and reversed. So let's talk about the things that are still in place to start out. So the soft run controls are still in force. Indefinite length of tenure is still in force. Um, those things haven't changed. Um, but a lot of things have. So price controls on cooperative housing was phased out in the 1970s already. In the 1990s, public housing kind of stopped being public. Hmm. 
So a change in law said that public housing must be operated according to business principles. So basically, <laughs> they have to be run as a for-profit business, even though they're government-owned. Oh, um, like something we also, would do. Uh -huh. and, and there's also no more subsidies. There's no more tax incentives for public housing. Um, so putting this all together, there's no longer a social mission. There's no longer government support. But it is still government-owned. So is it really public housing i would say no My, I, I'm what inclined, about it I'm makes inclined. it what it makes it public i'm inclined to agree yeah but it's i mean again it's like the tradition the tradition of of being public is it's more more of a uh, what's the term um the term escapes with it. it's it's something that it, it maintains its name despite not qualifying for the things that actually would define it as such it's like the American public public housing system, apparently. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, I think once you eliminate that social mission, you're no longer public housing. I think that that's, you know, that's really what we mean when we say public housing. That's what we ought to expect. Yeah. Um, and then, so we mentioned this above, in 2009, condominiums became legal. And... The thinking behind this was, okay, if we allow condominiums, then that will encourage developers to build more housing, right? Developers would, only, would be building housing if only they could sell some of those units as condominium units. Yep. That's, what they this, were, that's what they were holding out on. They'd be like, oh, right. I'd be building so much housing if only I could really stick it to my tenants. So, so this just didn't work. Um, and like we said before, housing is just too expensive for developers to respond to short-term market incentives like this. The loans are taking decades to pay off. It's just not reasonable to expect them to respond to these kinds of incentives. Um, what instead the effect of this law change was that much public housing was converted to cooperative housing. So in 1990, 23% of all housing stock was public. By 2016, only 18% was. Hmm. And downtown Stockholm alone lost 100,000 units of public housing to this kind of conversion that was allowed by this, this law change. Um, and then probably the biggest issue... So if we throw out Stockholm, there's still a housing surplus throughout Sweden. Um, the problem is that that housing isn't where it needs to be. And there is an absolutely massive housing shortage in Stockholm and um, overall a housing shortage creeping into other areas of Sweden, um, right? Because the housing is just not in the right place. I mean shortage. So there is 20 year wait lists for rental housing in Stockholm. Jeez. <laughs> wow. What do these people do until then? Well, you're born, you get on the list. When you're out of college, you're good to go. <laughs> Probably. So, yeah. So that's, so we'll, we'll so we'll, we'll take that on in a minute. Um, so in Stockholm is not the only, so that's obviously the most acute housing shortage, 20 year wait list, but other cities are feeling a shortage as well. And construction just hasn't kept up with the need for housing. And that's kind of the biggest story here. So like I said, this was not a happy ending. There have been substantial reforms. And as we said, people just forgot how bad the housing system was in the 1920s and 30s and just kind of allowed the system to be slowly repealed. So 
by our four criteria, affordability is starting to become a problem. Um, so a shortage of housing puts upward pressure on prices. And remember, there's no price controls on cooperative housing, and there's no price controls on owner-occupied housing. Public housing is no longer held to a social mission. And, you know, it turns out that the soft rent controls don't work very well in a housing shortage. They worked pretty well for a while, um, but it's just kind of a weakness of that type of rent control. And so really affordability is becoming a problem. Um, number two is housing security, our second criteria. And I'm going to say that this housing system is not good with housing security. And that should make you scratch your head because there's indefinite length of tenure in rental housing and the home ownership rate is 71%. So how can I say that this housing system does not succeed with housing security? What do you think? Well, the wait list seems like a very big problem. <laughs> I mean, like, cause like security also needs to say, you know, you can get housing when you need it and then yeah. you don't have to leave it ever. I, would... I mean, you theoretically, I guess, like on, on a, on a very, very broad strokes way, you can argue that this is technically addressing the human rights need for housing, but it, not in a pragmatically useful way, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, so, yeah, so the story here is that there's just very, very long wait lists for apartments and cooperatives. And what happens is that it just takes so long to get a good enough apartment that people have to frequently move. So remember, in the first episode, we defined the second criteria as are people forced to move when they don't want to move? And that's unquestionably happening here. So in Stockholm, there's a very high proportion of small apartments that are only suitable for a single person and that you could never raise a family in. Um, so once you're, you know, once you get an apartment that you really like, you're set forever because you can stay there forever. Um, but in practice, what happens is the waiting lists are so long that you take the first apartment you can get and, um, and even if it's too small, even if it's in the wrong location, you know, even if you just don't like it, you have to take it. And maybe a year or two later, your name comes up on a different apartment and that apartment is a little bit better. And so you go ahead and you move to that apartment because it's a little bit better, but it's still not what you need. And so you keep moving every year or two and your housing gets a little bit better and, you know, eventually you get the housing you need, but, um, you know, that's not a stable situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that, that seems like, <laughs> that seems like the worst. And it seems so surprising. I mean, maybe, maybe they like were like kids who like were locked, like caught smoking and then were forced to smoke like an entire carton <laughs> of cigarettes. They're just like, they're, they like built so much so fast. They were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And now there's a huge, <laughs> a huge shortage. Um, but yeah, definitely would take a would takes like a ding out of the security issue. For sure. Our third criteria is quality housing. Is this housing that people want to live in? And so, you know, we talked about this housing system making a lot of housing that was viewed as being ugly and monotonous. And sometimes when an ugly building is built, some time passes and now the building isn't ugly. We see it as being charming 
or quaint, and it kind of hmm. grows on us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that what happened that with did, these concrete <laughs> boxes? That did not happen. That did not happen with Swedish public housing. It is still viewed as being ugly and monotonous. It did not become <laughs> charming with age. I wonder if there was more like option for choice and things like that, if that like helps. I almost wonder if it's this kind of like you don't have a choice. You just kind of have to move in. It doesn't meet your needs. I, I bet that that negatively affects because if you had if you had like nice memories from childhood here, I mean, like a lot. I mean, cool is cool. And like those buildings that we've looked at when we particularly call it architecture, are, like, by any standard, very interesting to look at. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of, like, kind of, like, nostalgia is uh, is memory-based, not really fact-based. So I wonder if it's also just, like, because people are so used to sort of, like, this volatile market and, like, kind of having to go with whatever is available. I wonder if that also kind of hinders them in the uh, quest to become a charming well, the volatile market is pretty recent. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't that way until you know. Until the last, um, you know, we'll say you know for sure fifteen, maybe twenty years. Oh, these buildings are done just like just that ugly. <laughs> They're just that ugly, yeah. <laughs> and then our last criteria: uh, the housing is generally maintained to last for generations, so it does well on. It's still doing well on that criteria. Um, I think it's interesting that of the five housing systems we looked at, the two that we had to say this was not a happy ending are both Nordic countries, mm. uh, Norway and Sweden. Mm. Hmm. Unfortunate. Unfortunate. Yeah, I'm looking at pictures of this now. I mean, I, of course, like, I'll get some ones that I think are, like, kind of okay, but they are uh, monotonous is the right term for it. Like, there isn't a lot of variance, even the ones that have, like, there are some that have, like, cute, like, different colored um, balconies and things like that. But for the most part, it's, like, very much, you know, here are 80 units all lined up together. <laughs> like, it's not architecturally. <laughs> they're, they're little bricks, basically. So I get it. Yeah, they're not, they're not charming. Um, they look very 70s. Very 70s architecture. <laughs> yep, I can see that. Ahead of its time, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if they had avocado fridges, we'd really have something. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to our show, guys. Uh, we do appreciate it. Uh, please um, continue to check us out at the podcast platform of your choice, be it Apple Podcasts, Google Play, what have you. And uh, also, while you're at it, please feel free to tell your friends, your family, coworkers, anyone who uh, wants to learn about housing and what it could be. Um, and after you've done that, uh, please also check out uh, the website for Chris's organization. That's housing4.us. Uh, and then swing on by to outrageousmechanisms.com to see more about this show and others that we have produced. Thanks again for checking us out. Uh, we will see you next time. Bye. 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 Outrageous.